You're with Sean Jung and Where the Veil Grows Thin, an exploration of the sacred moments of our human experience in life and death, joy and sorrow, birth and end of life. It's the unscripted instant when the heart opens, the face-to-face moments with the divine. Hi, uh, welcome back. This is part two of a piece that I entitled The Eleventh Hour. It's based on a training that we did a long time ago in hospice for volunteers to be able to sit vigil with patients. If you're new to the podcast or if you didn't listen to last week's, you might want to. It could make more sense because I kind of jump in here right in the middle. Um, But either way, you know, do whatever you want to do. I've heard it said that a person will want to die based on how they lived. However, my experiences have shown me that not all private people want to die alone and not all social butterflies want to die with half the village in the room and that predicting how someone will want to die is a great big waste of time. Our focus up until someone being on hospice, has not been to keep them comfortable. It has been to keep them alive. So for a family, it can feel like an abrupt and rude about-faced to suddenly shift from treatment to comfort. And sometimes the change in medications can feel alarming to a family. Comfort medicines are medications designed to be used to help people be relaxed and pain-free. Comfort medicines are designed and the use of them guided by hospice nurses to keep the person who is doing the dying in whatever state of relaxation and comfort they have indicated that they want to be kept in. Again, Let's have those conversations before we need to be guessing how comfortable someone else would want to be based on what we ourselves would want. If you are not the hospice nurse or the medical power of attorney for the patient, you have to be very, very careful about suggesting or guiding anyone in the use of medications. You can certainly address what you see with those who are there to dispense medications, but it is illegal for us to practice medicine if we are not licensed to do so. Speaking to someone when you are going to touch them is important, as well as telling them what is going to happen. You want to trust that the person is getting the information you give them, so you have to do that. If a person is non-responsive, you have to just trust when we say it's important, even though they're non-responsive, to say, Joe, I'm going to, I'm going to fluff your pillow or mom, I'm going to uh, just wipe your face with a cool cloth or, you know, we're going to change you now. We've given you some medication um, for comfort, some extra medication for comfort, and um, we're going to just be moving your body around, but you are safe. Everything is fine. It's important, I think, to talk to people, even if they are not responsive. It's really important to speak to them and not about them when you're in the room. Um, 
Knowledge and guidance can make the difference between a frightening, unpleasant memory or a comfortable, beautiful memory of someone's death. We don't want to try to take away the sadness that's there, but we can certainly help neutralize the fear that many family members might bring to the bedside of someone who is dying or friends. It is not necessary to point out to family members all the reasons that they should be happy when someone they love is dying or has just died. It's one of the things many people will do in an attempt to make those being left behind feel better. And that need is usually being sourced from a discomfort in ourselves with being in the presence of deep grief and sorrow. I take great exception to thinking that we, as the doulas, midwives, volunteers, or even an immediate family member, that we have the right to tell anyone how to die. My experiences in the final moment of many lives have not led me to think they need us to tell them anything. And for us to gather everyone around the bed and take the dying person's hand and say, you are dying, this is what it feels like to die, simply feels beyond inappropriate. I agree that soft words of loving support are always appropriate. Saying to a person who is dying, you are so beautiful. You are doing such a great job. Thank you for allowing me to be in your life. Thank you for being in my life. I will never forget you. Those kinds of things can be helpful and comforting. But I do not believe that I would want anyone to try to tell me how to die. And I would be mad if someone did it to one of my family members. I think it's good to assure loved ones who are dying that you are going to be all right. Not in a way that makes them feel like you're trying to rush them along or that you're not going to miss them, but just in a reassuring kind of way that says, you go on and go when it's time, and we'll see you when we get there. Touching someone who is actively dying can be comforting. Cupping the ankles of someone lying in bed and just holding their feet or slipping your hand beneath one of theirs softly stroking their hair, can be comforting if you know ahead of time that they liked that kind of touch. It's in my advanced directive. I want my hair brushed, if I have any, and if I don't, just brush my scalp. I want my feet rubbed. Those kinds of things are there. I've told people I want that. When breathing stops... We wait. Many dying people have what is called apneic breathing, long or seemingly long pauses between breaths. This can be a tricky time and can even freak some people out if the dying person stops breathing and everyone gathers around the bed and then 60 or 90 seconds later they take a huge gulp of air. Sometimes people jump out of their skin. So helping to prepare a family for that possibility is important, and generally the hospice nurses will have done this already. We like to remind families frequently that the moment of death is not an emergency. 
Nothing needs to happen immediately. This can be some of the most amazing time of someone's dying after they have actually died. It is a time for ritual and ceremony, and it can be talked about among family members long before the actual moment. But again, all deaths are unique to the person doing the dying and to the ones left behind who loved them. If you find yourself attending an expected death and hospice is not involved, there are certainly things that need to be done. If the person who dies is a hospice patient, all that needs to happen, if it hasn't already, is that hospice needs to be called. Remember, these words are from a training that we put together specifically for already trained hospice volunteers, just giving them an extra layer of information and guidance on how to be with someone at the moment of death. The only truly expected deaths in the eyes of the law are ones where hospice is involved or if someone is in a nursing home or in a hospital. And not all nursing home or hospital deaths are necessarily expected deaths. If someone is at home and dies and hospice is not involved, it will not be considered an expected death, and the protocol will be different. The coroner needs to be notified of all deaths. If hospice notifies them, then they will already have a face sheet already on hand, and they will clear the notifying party to proceed without the coroner's office needing to get involved, unless the notifying party has reason to believe that there has been foul play, in which case the coroner will come. Otherwise, they don't need to come out unless they are handling the removal of the body. We don't need to get into all the details about this, except that sometimes people don't think about it. I'm amazed how many people think that because they have stated their wish to be cremated, that they've taken care of business, and they haven't. There are papers to fill out and, of course, money to change hands. If your loved one or you yourself desire donating your body to science, this must happen before death occurs. No money changes hands, but the paperwork absolutely needs to be filled out, and the person who's doing the dying is the one that needs to make the request that their body be donated. Okay, so you're there, and death has come, and there is no sense of emergency. Noting the time of death is helpful because someone will be asked for it. Some families will not have wanted to discuss this moment before it happens. If hospice is part of the care team, they will have made an effort to find the gentlest, most gracious way to talk about what happens at the time of death. In the immediate moment after death, and for some time thereafter, the loved ones who are present may not be able to make decisions about anything at all. If there has been at least some discussion about that moment before it happens, it can be helpful. But if that hasn't happened, then we deal with what we have. Always, we deal with what we have. And we do it slowly and patiently 
and with every attempt made to honor each individual's t- need for time to process the death and time to be with the body. Bathing a person who has died is a sacred ritual. Allowing, inviting, or guiding family members in how to participate can be beautiful. Oftentimes, the women of a tribe will be the ones to perform this ceremony, and depending on the family and the circumstances, it can actually be life-altering and emotionally healing. It can be intimate and meaningful and deeply spiritual. If the person has a catheter, having a clinically trained person remove it is more helpful than trying to figure it out. But I've been walked through it on the phone by a skilled nurse and it was fine. Or it can just stay in place until someone's there who knows how to remove it. If there is oxygen in use, turn it off. Removing the tubing from the nose and off the face is allowed. But say very little. If spoken to, answer. But otherwise, just move slowly and with loving intention. Watch and listen with respect. As unobtrusively as possible, begin to remove the evidence of illness from the room. Do not do anything with medications except gather them all to one spot. There are strict regulations for the disposal of drugs, and a trained professional will do that. You can begin very quietly to just tidy up the area. You might offer the opportunity to anyone present to spend time alone with the body. You might ask if the family has thought about what they want their loved one to leave the house in. Maybe the one who departed actually left instructions on what they want to leave the house in. Wouldn't that be awesome? In hospice, we had certain things we liked to do. And we had a fluid dance in how it happened. Personally, I love being included anytime the opportunity presents. There is something so beautiful to me about attending a death. The magic is in the details, and each of us had little details that we would bring to the experience. Our focus on that time is easing the transition for family and close loved ones and creating an environment of peace and beauty and reverence. When it is time for the body to leave the home, we would be there to assist the funeral home in doing that as graciously as possible and to offer guidance to the family about that process. When my mom died, the hospice nurse was there, and and when the funeral home arrived, she encouraged all of us kids to just go out in the meadow by where she was and um, and just sit and she would call us when my mom was ready to go because she didn't want us to watch them zip her up into a body bag. I didn't know that that's what would happen because I didn't work for hospice when my mom died. And it doesn't always happen. But I was so grateful to that nurse that she spared us that. But some family members, you can encourage them to not be in the room when the body is first being transferred to wherever it's going to be transferred to. And some family will want to stay. And that's okay, too. As I said earlier, 
we um, deal with what we have and with what comes. Once the body is off the bed, remaking the bed, removing the sheets, placing clean linens or just a quilt or blanket on the bed, freshening everything and placing something on the pillow, lowering the lights. These are all things that can help with that first moment when the loved ones or the family re-enter the space where their beloved died. When we would first enter a hospice situation, eventual body removal was always one of the things that would run through our minds. We would be looking ahead and looking for ways to make it as easy on the family as possible. Sometimes we would just know that at the time of death, removal was going to be an issue, and so we would know when we called the death in that we needed to ask for additional help. The non-emergency number for fire departments is an incredible resource for helping to safely and graciously remove someone from a difficult area of their home. One thing we do know is that once the funeral home is called and once they have arrived, they do not like to wait. So we would always wait until the family said that they were ready for their loved one to leave before we called the funeral home to come. I hope some of this information has been helpful. If you've been listening to this because you have been thinking about how to be of service to those who are dying, If you think you want to do this kind of work, these words are probably a good beginning. When we sit beside a dying person, or when we hold the daughter huddled on the floor as she wails because her mom has just died, or we sit in the presence of the young mom whose young son died sometime during the night in her arms, When we companion the dying and hold space for the survival of the living, we are in a place of profound vulnerability. Nestled somewhere between confidence and fear, vulnerability is that state of exposure that makes us most human. When we can honor, embrace, and love our own vulnerability, then we nourish and touch the primal source of our truest power, that divine connection to all that is great, all that is good, all that is meaningful, and all that truly matters. This is Sean Jung. Thank you for your time. I hope you'll join me again where the veil grows thin.